This special episode of Dice Company contains adult content and jump scares. It is not for the faint-hearted. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to this special one-shot Dice Company does Candela Obscura. My name is Charlie and I'll be your GM as we invite you to join our abusive circle of friends on their adventures into the dark, industrialising Victorian cityscape of Newfair. This game system, recently released by Darrington Press, uses D6 dice only. High rolls are good, low rolls are bad, and every roll comes with its own stakes. Feel free to check out the rules yourselves or learn with us as our party falls through this game mechanic hitting every branch on the way down. To keep things interesting, our usual DM, Tom, has foolishly elected to bolster the ranks in the players in the coming adventure. As he will shortly experience, teamwork is a sickness this party stamps out at every opportunity. So, will the group solve the dark mystery they will shortly encounter, or will Tom end up throat-punching a member of the party? Let's find out. Party, please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Tom, and I'm playing Sir John Harrington, an explorer. Hi, I'm Harry, and I'm playing Finnegan the Nib Twist, or possibly Mr. Alias Morden, a criminal. Hi, I'm Alex, and I'm playing Professor Averard Selmy, a professor. Hello, I'm Dave, and I am playing Silas Trapper, an occultist. Okay then, with our characters introduced, let's crack on with our first chapter of Candela Obscura, The Curious Case of Ernest Wainwright. Welcome to Hale, the Jewel of the North. In a world ravaged by a decade of relentless winter, the geography of this modest nation has shielded it against the worst of the biting chill known as the Shiver. Powered by rapid industrialization, Hale has harnessed newly discovered electrical technology to fend off the encroachment of larger nations vying for control of its lush Greenland valleys in the south and the expanses of scarlet forest trees to the north. It's the year 1909, and in a world reminiscent of our own at a similar time, Hale's industrial prowess has given rise to a sprawling metropolis on its western coast, the thriving capital city of Newfair. Above ground, a booming economy of expanding industry pours smoke over a population driven by modernization and the need for advancement in a classist society. Deep underground, though, lies the ruins of an older city, a superstitious past, and prowling the uncharted catacombs in the darkness, terrifying mysteries searching for a way back into the light. It is in this place that our story begins. It is early afternoon on the 9th of September. Clock tower bells ring through the narrow cobblestone streets as gas lamps flicker into life, casting a warm glow over soot-covered thoroughfares. Tall chimneys belch plumes of coal smoke into the evening air as horses clop through this mist, 
pulling carriages laden with people and goods. Their hooves mingle with the hum of conversations as pedestrians navigate the crowded sidewalks. Their attire a blend of bowler hats, corsets and long skirts. The occasional motor car passes by, their engines sputtering with a distinctive roar that still turns heads and prompts the occasional gasp. To the east looms the formidable fortress of Nine Irons. Now repurposed as the central command of New Fair's police, known as the Periphery, its towering walls cast shadows over sun-deprived courtyards where prisoners partake in their scant moments of recreation. Cold-blooded killers through to minor political rivals all come here, but not all receive the same treatment. In one of the few buildings with sanitation resides a row of cells adorned with finer furnishings than most. The majority stand empty, but towards the end of the row, one door remains locked, and inside dwells one of the city's least known but most prolific criminals. A well-dressed man approaches the cell door and bangs on it three times. Mr. Twist, come to where I can see you. Do I uh, know the guard's name? You've just met this person. Okay, I'll walk up to the bars, put my hands through uh, the bars and cross my arms and say, uh, so uh, what's up, you uh, here free me? Sadly, no. My name is Avery Choi. You won't be familiar with me, but you may be aware of the head of my section. Dexter White, is that ringing any bells for you? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. He, uh, he said I could go free now. Uh, done nothing wrong, you see. So you can uh, unlock the cell then? Clearly you haven't met Mr. White. He would never have said such a thing. It seems to me, Mr. Twist, you may have been forgetting the deal you struck. Well, I seem to remember freedom was part of that, wasn't it? Actually, you're not entirely wrong. Do they give you the papers in this place? So I look round at the rather bare prison cell and say, uh, oh, I must have left them in my other filing cabinet, I suppose. Very funny, Mr. Twist. I suppose they don't. Giving a master forger papers would be rather like giving a serial killer a firearm. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who said anything about a master forger? Sounds like you're casting aspersions there. Wouldn't hold up in a court of law. In fact, they did hold up in court, Mr. Twist. You'll remember you were due to be hanged for these offences and were saved by the graces of my section. I was mistaken identity. I still hold Mr. Twist was someone else. You caught the wrong man. That's an interesting observation from your cell in the Nine Irons. Mr. Twist, I do have a proposition for you, though, which you may find of some interest. Fine, let's hear it. Let me start by telling you what the papers would have said had you been permitted to read them. There has been a murder of late, one Mr. Ernest Wainwright. Well, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. That was nothing to do with me. Uh, there was another guy. I know his name. You want to know his name? You have his name? Uh, yeah, uh, Dion Lapap. I see. You'll notice there is a bandage on your left arm. Please remove the bandaging. Uh, so I lay down on my arm and say, um, oh, well, where'd that come from? As you do, you find crude tattoos of dancing men in a spiralling pattern up your arm. Must have got drunk before I came in, eh? How you know about this, anyway? I know about it, Mr. Twist, because it was part of my section's design. And with that, Mr. Choi takes a crude wooden mannequin from his pocket. You see, as he puts it in one hand, that it possesses the same markings. As he shows you the mannequin, from his other pocket, he takes a needle. He places the needle lightly on the arm of the mannequin. You feel a sensation on your arm. Uh, so I scratch gently at the tattoo and uh, 
try and see if how ordered is and whether it'll peel off. Really hoping it'll peel off. Unfortunately, it doesn't peel off. And as you begin to scratch at it, Mr. Choi begins to apply pressure to the pin. What was a sensation now is most definitely a stabbing pain. But what were you doing? If you're not prepared to be serious with me, Mr. Twist, I am prepared to be very serious with you. Are we going to speak in clear terms now, or would you like me to demonstrate this device? I, well, I don't think I like a demonstration. Been perfectly clear with you this whole time, though. I see. Willing to carry on being clear? We're, we're all friends here, aren't we? Avery Choi places the mannequin back in his pocket. Then let us get down to business, Mr. Twist, as my proposition may be of some interest to you. Ah, cheers, Avers. Mr. Choi, to you. As you were. This isn't going very well for you, Mr. Twist. How so? Well, I did come here with an offer, which I will reconsider if you continue to play the fool. Would you like to rot in this cell, or do you indeed want a chance at the freedom you originally spoke of? Freedom will be good. Then listen carefully. I can't tell you everything about the murder of Mr. Wainwright, but I can tell you at this stage that we have some serious concerns regarding it, and we find ourselves in a position where the particular skills you have, those same skills that saved you from the noose, are of use to us. As you'll see from your arm, we have taken precautions to ensure you act appropriately. But, if you're willing, we will tonight remove you from this cell and give you the opportunity to repay our kindness to you. I can't guarantee your freedom will result, but certainly you will have greater freedom around the Nine Irons should you accept my offer, and in payment to us, you will encounter no small amount of danger. Do we have an understanding? Can't see how I'd rightly refuse. Yeah, we have an agreement. I'll catch this uh, Mr. Lepap for you in no time. You got my word. We're not necessarily catching anyone, and it's Mr. Wainwright's murder, but I'm pleased to hear that you are interested. In which case, he turns to the guards. Guards, have Mr. Twist dressed appropriately and make sure he is shackled and brought to the relevant location when the time comes. Mr. Twist, I look forward to seeing you later this evening. And do remember, there is a glass of water on my desk, and should I choose to place this carving into it, you will suffer in a most exquisite way. Double-cross us, Mr. Twist, and you will have no more than five minutes to regret your decision. Are we clear? Well, I believe you. But um, how does that little gizmo thing work there? How come I'm feeling it when you jab into it? That is not a matter of concern at this present moment. You say you'll kill me if you drop it in that glass? I'm saying that you shouldn't test my patience. I'm afraid, though, time is short, Mr. Twist, and I must be going. A... Well, not a pleasure to have met you, but hopefully you'll be more acquiescent to conversation when I see you later today. Mr. Choi turns smartly on his heel and makes for the exit. Right you are. Okay, guards, bring my evening wear. As the afternoon darkens, finer electrical lights illuminate Briars Green, a southern district which hosts many of Newfair's academic halls. Outside the Institute of Exploration, a rag-clad newspaper boy cries to the crowds entering the building, Newfair soon to be at war, and 
the latest on the Newgate murder. Get your new fair chronicle and read all about it. Hands dart out, exchanging coins for papers as people move through the grand entrance. Inside, a hall adorned with the heads of exotic creatures and tapestries depicting great explorers of the past fills as the elite of New Fair society gathers, creating an ambience of sophistication and curiosity. On the stage stands a table behind which sit three men. Two of those on the stage are none other than John Harrington and Professor Averard Selmy. The third member on the stage is a well-dressed rotund man who checks an extravagant pocket watch before rising. The muttering dies down as he does so. Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed members, tonight is a momentous occasion as we have the privilege of gathering here to learn of the extraordinary exploits of the explorer Sir John Harrington, known far and wide for his daring expedition and unparalleled adventures, Sir John joins us fresh from his journey beyond the known into the very heart of the frigid north. As you will have heard, his exploration has been shrouded in whispers. Some here tonight will be skeptical of his claims, while others already believe a new frontier of knowledge has been discovered. Tonight, Sir John will regale us with the untold stories of his encounters with the northern tribes and inexplicable forces that defy the very fabric of conventional understanding. And here he gestures at the professor. Also joining us tonight, I have the pleasure of introducing Professor Avarad Selmy, one of the finest academic minds our city has ever produced. His work on alchemical reactions and combustibles has driven a decade of tremendous innovation. We are humbled to have his keen intellect serve on this panel this evening in the capacity of appraising the credibility of Sir John's discoveries. Now, the time has come for Sir John to lay bare the secrets of his exploration. Let us lend him our ears with open minds. Without further ado, let us welcome the man of the hour, the intrepid explorer, Sir John Harrington. And the crowd go wild as Sir John rises. Sir John Harrington, a man in his late 40s with salt and pepper coloured hair and a magnificent beard, stands up. Ladies and gentlemen of the Institute of Exploration, esteemed colleagues, distinguished guests, I stand before you, Sir John Harrington, the man who embarked on a remarkable expedition that transcended the boundaries of conventional exploration. The purpose of this journey, cloaked in the language of science and medicine, was to study the purported medicinal properties of animals hunted by a reclusive northern tribe. It presented an opportunity to expand the boundaries of human understanding and eradicate the maladies caused by industrialization. I'm sure if you've been to any tavern or tea shop since my return, you've heard the rumors, bastardizations of the truth. I've spent these last weeks poring over my meticulous notes, and I'm here today to tell you the whole story. Hands have begun to shoot up in the audience, though no one has yet spoken. I'm going to keep talking and ignore those hands. As we all know, the world is governed by the rules, tenets, and empirical reasoning of science. I myself have always held fine people such as you in the highest regard, and during my expedition, I held the truth of the world at the forefront of my mind. Cynicism, skepticism, and cold logic, these would be my shield. 
and I encountered things which gave me pause, things which stretched my own personal belief in the unambiguity of science. There was nothing I have not experienced before, and in the absence of science, nature must seem like magic to these people. Yet, over time, I was exposed to practices which defied logic. I saw the sacred rituals that allowed the tribe to commune with spirits, seek guidance and healing through the sacrifice of the formidable beasts they hunted, the saber-toothed leopard. As an astute man of science, I grappled with the inexplicable. I could find no basis for the mysterious forces at play within my, albeit limited, scientific understanding. Ladies and gentlemen, what I saw could only be described as supernatural. Heresy! is shouted from the audience. Another member shouts, Let the man speak! And the organiser stands trying to quiet the crowd after the utterings of Sir John. Various calls of question ring out through the halls as the acclaims of John are taken in by the audience. Now, now, please, let Sir John finish. Sir John, please do continue. I ask you all, please, show our speaker the respect he is due. Liar! Another person shouts as you resume. My friends, please, I understand that these claims are diametrically opposed to conventional thinking. But I must confess, I've returned to Newfair, a man transformed, as I believe you would have been if you had seen what I've seen. This is an outrage, yells another member of the audience. There now seems to be a massive amount of discontent in the audience as various members in the crowd begin to tussle as the believers in Sir John aggressively take on those who believe in science. Again, the organiser stands and tries to gain some kind of parity in the madness. Ladies and gentlemen, really, perhaps we should hear from our esteemed professor. Please, I beg you, attend him with decency. Uh, professor Selmy. Professor Selmy rises slowly to his feet. He is a simple grey man in a simple grey suit. He removes his spectacles, cleans them carefully, replaces them even more carefully, and then surveys the room before him, not glancing at Sir John to his side. The crowd quiets. I have been asked here to assess the credibility of Sir John's testimony. He began, perhaps revealing more than he intended to, by speaking of his work being cloaked in the language of science. He spoke of bastardizations of the truth. He said he held us in the highest regard, and then he revealed himself. He spoke of an absence of science. His ramblings contained just that. No science, no truth. I advise you to disregard the words and the man who uttered them. The professor's right, yells a member of the audience. This is heresy. Science is being defamed by this aberration of a man. Another member stands up and says, Sir John has saved the city in the past. Listen to his words. Again, the organiser stands trying to quell the masses of people as they try to hurl questions at Sir John. Uh, Sir John, perhaps you would like to respond. Sir John turns to face Averard Selmy. I, Dr. Selby, am no charlatan <laughs> concocting tales for the amusement of feeble minds. Your accusations reek of the arrogance one would expect from a prolonged time spent in stagnant libraries. The world, Dr. Selby, is not in your books. It is out there. The crowd still yelling have heard Sir John's words and the organiser says, uh, Professor Selby, your response? My response, gentlemen, is that I am Professor Selby. And Professor Selmy sits down. There is a near eruption from the crowd 
as the debate gathers strength and feeling in the many other debates now taking place across the audience. A lady stands. Sir John has proved himself for the city time and again. The man is a war hero. He wouldn't simply make a story like this up, you fools. Really? Another voice at the back rings out. A wager! A wager, I say! Again, the organiser stands and tries to get some kind of parity and says, Oh, the man at the back, what was it you were saying? A very well-dressed gentleman stands and says, We have two opposing points of view here, those of Sir John and those of Professor Selmy. I say there is only one way to settle the matter, a wager. The two should be asked to back their words with their reputations and their wallets. The organiser turns to you both. Uh, not how I was expecting this to go, gentlemen. What do you say to this notion of a wager? My thoughts are that there are no forces beyond science. However, if people wish to waste their money supporting self-serving nonsense, then they are of course free to do so. A hundred pounds on the professor! Yells a member of the audience from the front row. Professor Selmy, your adherence to the laboratory is as steadfast as a ship anchored in a calm harbour, while explorers like me navigate the tempestuous seas of the unknown. Perhaps, dear sir, a touch of adventure might lend colour to your black and white world. I accept the wager. And I accept your wager, sir, says another member of the audience. I back Sir John, and I will meet you in the street. And at this point, the audience now descends into near total chaos, and the organiser, giving up on trying to keep the peace, ushers you two from the stage. You find yourselves in the space behind the stage, amongst all the equipment used for other presentations. I do apologise, gentlemen. We were expecting this to be a contentious talk, of course, but I'm afraid things have rather gotten away from us. I do hope you are both all right. I am perfectly well. Please, I've dealt with worse in my time. I see, I see. Uh, and please accept my apologies and those of my institution. We were unprepared for such strength of feeling. I can hear now the crowd obeying regarding that wager. Do you really intend to honour it? I always honour a wager. Uh, quite right, quite right. And, and you, Professor Selmy? My suggestion is that if you find your crowd baying, you have invited the wrong crowd to your event. Uh, uh, again, I quite understand and do apologise. I had no idea. I thought this would be a moment to air our views rather than shout one another down. This is really quite extraordinary behaviour from a group of such distinguished people. Oh, uh, what is it? He responds to another man who has just joined you. Sir Harrington, you will recognise this as your long friend and expedition partner, Monty Hastings. He's approaching you with a note clasped in his hand. Sir, a gentleman just passed me this note and said it was most important that you read it. Thank you, Monty. He passes you the note. Interesting note. It comes from an unsigned individual telling me to come to the Dark Horse pub for eight o'clock and ask for a Mr. Morneville as a way to settle the matter. Sell me? Do you ever frequent pubs? No, I do not. It is no surprise to me. Well, perhaps tonight you will join me as a guest as we go speak to Mr. Morneville. If it will hasten the conclusion of this day's abject nonsense, then I will frequent this establishment for a few minutes. Can't imagine it will take longer than that. Come on then, Monty. 
we're leaving. The organiser bustles back round from the stage that he has briefly looked at. Uh, Gentlemen, I do believe it would be best if you were to leave via the back entrance. I do believe the main exit is, well, unsafe for either of you. I will be leaving through the front entrance. Oh, uh, as you wish, Sir John. Uh, Professor Selmy? I shall avoid the crowds. And Professor Selmy heads for the quiet, sensible way out. Oh, quite right. And the two leave, with Sir John now heading out to the front of stage. As you attend the stage, you find that not a person has left the room. There are small fights breaking out across the audience and still more people in top hats yelling their points of view. None yet have appeared to notice you and your colleague. As I go by, I'm going to listen for any voices that I recognise who are in support of me and give them a wave and a point and acknowledgement. There are various burly men who appear to have had a military past by your estimations of them, yelling your name in fierce support. Others of a more academic appearance appear to be yelling the virtues of science. Some have seen you, acknowledge you, but don't ask you to join in their fight. Good men, keep up the good fight. Then I head on out. (laughs) Fucking bullies. You push your way through the crowd. No one offers you particular resistance, but you find yourself stood in front of the newspaper boy who was originally at the entrance. Uh, sir, newspaper chronicle? Of course, young man. And I'll flick him a coin and take one of the papers. The boy catches the coin and then passes you a paper. Oh, it's you, Sir John. I've seen your picture in the paper. That's right, boy. You work hard, train, and one day you might just make an explorer like me. Oh, I will. I will. And the boy is lost in the crowd of baying mobs as they make their way out of the main hall. Sir John strides into the night, his partner in tow. I hand the newspaper to Monty and ask him to read to me as we walk to the Dark Horse pub. Monty, slightly irritated by this, takes the paper and begins to read it to Sir John as they walk out of the chaos they've created in the direction of the Dark Horse. It's an hour later. The noisy flickering of primitive and barrack street lanterns cast shadows over the streets of South Soffit, one of Newfair's poorest districts. The air hangs heavy with the acidic scent of coal smoke, blended with the distinct echoes of clinking glasses and muffled laughter from nearby taverns. Nestled between taller buildings stands the shabby premises of the Twilight, a curiosity shop only distinguishable by the faded sign which creaks gently in the breeze. A horse-drawn coach pulls up and a smartly dressed man alights. As he approaches the twilight, he finds it stands in darkness, but that the door is open. He enters cautiously. Every wall is filled with shelves, themselves crammed with strange artifacts. The air is filled with quiet ticks, whirs, and no small amount of steam flowing from liquids which purr quietly in an assortment of mismatched flasks on the long server's desk. In the middle of the floor space lies a man dressed in a worn coat, barely shielding him from the evening chill. 
empty bottle of spirits slips from his fingers, its contents long since drained. Clasped in his other hand is a faded picture of a mother and son. The man speaks. Silas, is that you? He prods the man on the ground. Oh, um, how can I help you? You take one brain mark due to the staggering hangover you've got. Silas, what happened, dear boy? As he looks down at you. Oh, it's you. Oh, I I just got to reminiscing a little bit. My God, the uh, the shop lies in darkness and there's a there's a smashed window here. Did did you do this damage? I don't think so, but I can't be certain to be honest. I would have thought it was quite dangerous to be lying in the floor with so many chemicals around, says the other, looking up at all the jars. Ah, what does it matter? I guess you would know better than me. Uh, I don't suppose you are open for any sort of business at the moment, are you? Well, seeing as you've disturbed me anyway, what was it you're looking for? Still trying to recover from the scene he's found on entering, the man says, Well, as you know, it's it's my wife, Catherine. She is extremely superstitious, as you'll remember, and the last dream catcher we bought from you doesn't appear to be doing the trick. She still says she's suffering the most vivid night terrors, and has dispatched me down here once again to see if you might have some form of potent dream catcher. I don't suppose you have any ideas on what we might try next. She is, she's been most insistent. Hmm. When you say it doesn't work, what do you mean exactly? Well, she woke up screaming blue murder last night. I don't know what manner of dream she had, but I have the slap mark on my face to prove that the last dream catcher was not effective. Have you considered that maybe it was effective? And things would have been even worse if it wasn't there. I had not considered that, Silas, but do help me in at least give me some artifact I can take back to her, because, as I said, she'll expect it of me. I don't want another slap. Well, Silas kind of gazes around the room somewhat vacantly. How about this uh, pendant? It may be of some help to ward away the spirits that are causing these dreams. The man takes the pendant. Ah, yes, this this looks perfect. I I assume it's very expensive. Petrina expects it to be very expensive, otherwise it won't work. Well, yes, it's um that's not cheap. It was it was quite tricky to come by, so I assign a certain amount of value to it, that's true. And what should I say it does? Well, it protects the wearer from nightmares. So if she wears it when she goes to bed, maybe whispers a few words as to what it is she's hoping to achieve. She may find that the dreams are at least lessened. Perfect. That sounds like just the thing. And he greedily takes it from you and thrusts probably more money than it's worth into your hands. Ah, that's a weight off my mind, Silas. And it also gives me time to visit the uh, tailor's tipple just down the road, which is most fortuitous. You'll remember we've had many a merry night in there, shall we say? Aye, aye, the, the tailor's tuple. I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? But, well, they sell booze. Terribly fun, you mean? And he nudges you. <laughs> I don't know that I'm looking for fun with the drink, to be honest. No, maybe you aren't, he says, remembering the scene he walked in on. As he does this, he turns and looks round at the walls and curiosities in your shop. This really is the most fascinating collection of oddities, Silas. What does it all do? Well, all sorts of things. Each artifact has got its own power or piece of influence or 
something it can achieve. Everything's different. I imagine you've acquired quite the stories here. As he gazes up at the walls, as he moves round the shop, he makes his way to the service counter, whereupon he stumbles across a note. Oh, Silas, there's a there's a letter here for you. It's not even opened. Have you seen this? Hmm. No, but I haven't exactly been fully conscious the last hour or two. I see. Well, perhaps we should read it, he says, picking it up and looking like he might open it himself. Okay, now snatch the letter off him. With the look of someone who feels like they've been denied information, he says, oh, what does it say? Well, it's addressed to me, so I'm not quite sure if what it says concerns you. Oh, well, a letter shared is a problem halved or some such nonsense. Do tell me. You know, Mother always says that lovers of words have no place where honest work must be done. That sounds like you won't be sharing the letter, he says with some disappointment. I'll share it. I was just making a point. Oh, yes, then. Well, point well made. Ah, I love a good point. Hmm. You don't seem to be paying any attention to it. Okay, Silas. Whispers of unsettling events have reached my ears. It's no safe to commit them to paper, but suffice to say, a man of your experience is needed. I have questions of my own, which need answering first, but be at the dark horse for 8pm tomorrow night and bring your tools, all of them. Gosh, it's a much more exciting letter than I usually get. But wait, that was dated... He looks at the paper. That was dated yesterday, Silas. Hmm. What does it mean? Well, my interpretation of it is that someone wants me to be at the dark horse at eight. So intriguing. Perhaps you need a drinking partner. I'd be delighted to attend and find out more about this most strange correspondence. He says quite merrily. Hmm. Very well, but mind what I said about talking too much. Oh, oh yes, of course. Your lips are sealed. You can trust in me. Uh, but the time, if it was sent yesterday and for 8pm, let me just... And he checks his pocket watch. We must be going now. Are you in a fit state? Aye, aye, I'll be all right. And uh, before leaving, Silas snatches up the photograph from the floor and tucks it into a pocket. I have a coach outside. Let us take that. And he opens the door, allowing you to make your way to the coach. Elsewhere in South Soffit, the lantern lights adorning the street of Cobbler's Way are now in full flicker as we enter the main part of the evening. Two men join the street, one reading the paper to the other. And uh, that's all there is in the paper, sir. Excellent. Thank you, Monty. It's always good to keep up with current affairs. Yeah, right you are, sir, Monty says, stowing the paper. Uh... If there's nothing else, I'll be making my way back to my homestead. Uh, what time is it, Monty? Mm, Monty gets his pocket watch out. Five to eight. Excellent. And how's the wife? She's in fine fettle, sir. Thanks for asking. Yeah, Give her my love. Enjoy your evening. 
I will. Thank you, sir. I'll see you on the morrow. And he turns and makes his way back down the street, leaving you outside the dark horse. He's a good fellow, I say to myself out loud, and then go into the pub. As you enter, you find heavy cigarette smoke hanging in the air over a muted atmosphere. People are sat in ones and twos, quietly discussing various things, and a number turn to look at you as you enter the room. A ragged piano player with his back to you plays softly. Beside him stretches a long bar, behind which a barman stands regarding you. Hello there. Good evening, my fine fellow. Um, I would like a pint of ale, please. Certainly. Coming right up. And he turns to make the ale. As he does this, a cart pulls up outside, and in walks Professor Selmy. Ah, Selby, you made it. Uh, Selmy eyes Sir John, but does not correct his misnaming. Can I get you a drink? No, thank you. Not even a water? Professor Selmy glances around, clearly appraises the place to work out whether the water is drinkable and decides that it is not. Nonsense. And I turn to the barman. Better water, please. Right you are. And the barman continues, returning shortly with the ale and a glass of filthy looking water, which he slides in the direction of Professor Selmy. I tip him heavily. Uh, Professor Selmy looks around for a plant to give the water to. There are no plants in this establishment. I would like to stand in the centre of the pub and say, I'm looking for a Mr. Mornavale. Mornavale. This causes a wince to pass through various people sat at their tables. The barman gestures at a huge man sat by himself and until now appearing to be asleep. He shouts across, Larry. Larry awakes, stands up and looks blearily around. He nods in your direction and Larry makes his way over to you. Are you causing any trouble? No, my good man, I'm just looking for Mr. Mornavel. All right, I see. Mr. Mornavel, is it? Why don't you come back over to the bar and lower your voice while you're at it? You understand? Understood. You both walk back to the bar and the barman leans over to speak to you more quietly. Listen, friend, we're not in the habit of shouting out the names of our residents here. A lot of business gets done and we prefer to keep one business separate from the other. Do I make myself clear? Understood. I can be subtle when I need to be. Oh, I'm sure you can. And if you uh, decide not to be subtle, my mate Larry here, he'll help you out with that. I look at the giant man up and down. Yeah, I understand. And I slide a few coins over to the barman as a way of apology. The barman looks with a slightly different eye on the situation now he's been paid and slides the coins into his pocket. So you said uh, you were looking for Mr. Mournavelle. That's right. He has an office upstairs. I'll send Larry up there now and I'll see if you're welcome. You just carry on sipping your beer and we'll be with you in a moment. Larry. And Larry, slightly resentful that he's been given any task to do, lopes off in the direction of the stairs. At this point, another person enters the bar. It's none other than Silas. Silas glances furtively around himself and then heads towards the bar. He's closely followed by Rufus, who approaches the bar following Silas, looking excited to be involved. Two large gens, please, barkeep. The barman turns to Silas. Ah, oh, Silas, yeah. Good to see you, mate. I'll, uh, I'll let Mr. Mornavel know you're here. Larry's just gone up to ask him anyway, so I'll, I'll let him know when he comes back down. Gin, it's not your usual drink, is it? Well, it's been a long day, and I thought I'd try something new. Who's the stiff? He says, gesturing to Rufus. 
who looks thrilled to be involved. Oh, this is um, this is Rufus. He's an acquaintance of mine. Rufus Pullo, pleased to meet you. And he takes his hand and extends it in the direction of the barman, who doesn't shake it. Is he going to be joining you upstairs? I glance at Rufus. No. I think maybe it'll be better if you stay here, Rufus. Uh, of course, I understand. I should purchase a drink then. What a place, he says, looking around. You could keep an eye out, couldn't you? Make sure there's nothing strange occurring down here. Oh, yes, I could I could do that. And Rufus takes up his position of vigilance by the bar. Larry returns and whispers to the barman. Right, gents, you're uh, all free to go up. It's the third floor office at the end. Before I head up, I put down enough money for my drink, but not Rufus's. The barman takes your money and then looks balefully at Rufus. There is the sense that something's going to start when you've gone. So Professor Selmy examines his glass of water and he's he spent this time calculating how quickly it will evaporate in this fetid, damp, but warm environment. Deciding it's hopeless, he accepts that he's going to have to follow the others upstairs. And the three of you leave your drinks and make your way to the stairs. Can I get a gauge on what Silas looks like? Obviously, this is a new person who's just... Silas is a very skinny and pale character. Papery, thin skin. But looking at him, you find it incredibly hard to put an age on him. You feel like he could be anywhere between about 25 and 55. I'd like to keep an eye on him as we go upstairs. The three of you make your way along a long corridor and find the end office going to walk in straight in you're just going to walk straight in straight in i mean i'm going to knock first i am a gentleman you knock and then open the door inside you find a large study the walls are covered in cupboards many of which have chains holding them closed in front of you is a large bay window in front of that is a desk and behind the desk a well-dressed man rises ah sir john a pleasure to meet you i am Dryden Mournevel, I see you got my note. And he approaches you to shake your hand. Pleasure. And I shake his hand firmly. And you, sir. And, oh, Professor Selmy, a pleasure also. And his hand comes out. Uh, Professor Selmy shakes it, but gives no impression that it's a pleasure from his perspective. Feeling almost undeterred by this, he continues... I'm very glad you got my note. A fascinating performance tonight. You're here in time too. That is well as we have little enough of it. Oh, and Silas. We haven't met, but I've heard of you and it's a real pleasure to have you with us this evening. And he shakes Silas's hand, or at least attempts to. Silas takes his hand and nods. Sir, in, in future, I'd appreciate it if you put your name to your notes. This little air of mystery doesn't serve anyone. I, I do apologise. It's been quite a trying day, as I will soon be able to relate to you. But first, I must make good on my promise to these two gentlemen. I believe you seek answers. Is that correct? A wager, I understand? Absolutely. I have certainly placed no bet. He's a barrel of laughs. A wager of honour, then. He gestures at a diary on the desk. The diary itself resides in a reinforced steel box which lies open. The cupboard next to it stands empty as well. You can see the chain from the cupboard has been removed. It looks as if the box has been taken from there and that the diary 
has been removed from the cupboard and splayed open in front of you. Now, gentlemen, I am very happy to settle your wager, and I believe the answers you seek reside in this diary. Now, which of you is it that should uh, is the most appropriate person to settle the matter? Well, I know what I saw, but sell me here disagrees. So it should be on him to prove that I was lying. Ah, then, Professor Selmy, uh, would you like a demonstration? Very well, let's get this over with. Certainly, then please approach the diary. Professor Selmy, looking irritated, goes forward and picks the diary up. You notice when you pick the diary up that it is written in a strange ink and the paper has a pinkish hue. Now, Professor, all you may need to do is read from the diary, select a page of your choosing, and, uh, well, uh, do prepare yourself. It appears to be the diary of a woman, and you may read from random pages, though, of course, I've handed you some. Very well. From page 15, it says, He spoke to me. My heart nearly burst from my chest. I had returned from deliveries when Mr. Pike came into the shop. I saw him look at me, but never dared to think he might actually approach. I turned to arrange some bowler hats on the shelves when I felt him behind me. My breath caught and then he spoke. From there, it's all a blur. We talked and he asked my name. Then he asked if we might speak again soon. The girls behind the counter tittered terribly and I turned red, but I said that would be nice. He smiled. He has the best smile. The light in the room has begun to take on a darker hue. Uh, do continue reading. So looking annoyed at being forced to read such garbage, uh, Professor Selmy flips to page 203. Another day passes and I've heard nothing. I'm losing hope. For our child's sake, he promised. What am I to do? He promised, he promised, he promised. The words he promised are written again and again down the page. The handwriting gets more erratic. It's written hundreds of times. The last entries appear even to scratch through the paper. The light begins to get significantly darker in the room now, and you feel a force pulling you almost towards the diary. Do you feel it yet, Professor? I have no idea what you're talking about. Then please read on. The Professor turns to page 562, skipping ahead now, hoping to get out of this room, feeling he has perhaps eaten or drunk something that's made him ill. Maybe that water that he didn't drink any of. Myrnaville's hand stretches out at this point. Be careful, Professor. The later pages are, well, read, but be careful. Uh, the Professor withdraws his hand so as not to be touched and gives a stern look. The handwriting here is nothing short of deranged. No longer written in ink, but in some other substance that stains the page. It says, I'm free. To whoever reads this diary and whatever you may think of me, know he will be mine in the next life. The guards have let me keep my little diary. I know their minds. They imagine to read it once I'm hanged and sell it after. Fools. No reader that as you see these words, I see you, I see you, I see you. A scream echoes around the room and the light all but disappears. You feel two hands gripping yours as Mernevel helps you force the book back into the reinforced box. He slams the box. Did you feel that, Professor? By the gods! And Professor Selmy looks extremely shaken. What did you see? Some trick. We must leave this place. This is, is really too much. I, I... I... I assure you, Professor, you are quite safe. You have just read an excerpt from a diary. As you'll see, though, it is the paper of the diary that is fascinating. Her name was Sophia Price. 
but she was later charged with the murder of James Pike. A sad business indeed. It appears she was spurned by this gentleman and was driven to madness by it. James went missing shortly after, but the scene at his home made it clear that he had been murdered. She was later arrested and hung for the offence, which is where we took an interest. We don't know where she got this diary, but as you can see, it is written on this rather unique paper. We call it binding paper. Writing on it causes a number of unsettling effects, one of which you have just witnessed. I trust this goes some way to answering your question. Certainly not, says Professor Selmy, looking incredibly uncomfortable. I don't understand this trickery. It has only raised further questions about why I attended this place this evening. Sir John, you will have witnessed the darkening of the room. Mournevelle turns to you. Sir John, did you witness anything? Of course I did. I saw the darkening of the room. By God's man. Even when you see it with your own eyes, you don't believe it? Professor Selmy shakes himself, obviously trying to withdraw his mind back to solid ground, and now looks around like someone in the audience at a magic show looking to see how the trick was accomplished. Come now, it's clearly no trick. You, tell me you saw it. Well, of course I saw it. But what I don't understand is why we're combining what appears to be a serious business with the folly of gambling. I'm glad you raised that, Silas. You're correct. The wager is of little matter to me, but there are other affairs which I need to discuss. Your skills, Silas, will be greatly needed, and I hope to secure your agreement to assist us this evening. But first, I must turn to yourself, Sir John, and yourself, Professor Selmy. I plan to tell you something that will certainly settle your wager, but I do need a promise in return. Is this acceptable? What promise? A signature. Mm, I see no problem giving out a signature. With that, he produces a few sheets of paper with tiny writing on each sheet. It appears that the paper is of the same type as that of the diary. This is a contract of sorts. Once signing it, I will be permitted to tell you everything you need to know in order to settle your wager once and for good. Professor, as a man of science, you understand I'm offering you the opportunity to examine this trickery you speak of for yourself and truly establish the true remit of the world. What say you? I fail to understand why signing a simple piece of paper has anything to do with whatever trick you have laid before us here. Then allow me to show my hand to you as clearly as I can. There are matters for which I need your help, and I am not at liberty to discuss those matters unless we have you sign this paper. Once you have, I will tell you all you have my solemn promise on that. What promise would you extract from me by my signature on this paper? Well, on signing this paper, you will be bound to keep my secret. That is one of the properties of what we call binding paper. There should be nothing for you to fear if you don't believe in this stuff. It's just a signature on a piece of paper. What harm could it be? And I'll pick up a pen and I'll sign it. I believe in keeping my word, sir. But having been stung in this way and again trying to Scrooge-like, trying to resist what his senses are telling him, he is there is he like signing is there a contract is it yeah it's very much a contract if he's signing something he'll treat it as normal paper and therefore he'll want to know that the contract like that side of it he'll want to be bound by he's not you know he's trying not to believe the the binding paper side of it the writing is immense is, is minute and the detail in any words you can read is so official and inscrutable it's difficult to get even a line of sense from it 
The document is almost deliberately too long for any one person to comprehend. He won't sign it. He's a coward. They're just words, Professor Selmy. Heaven's sake. Words have power, Sir John. Uh, and Professor Selmy looks sidelong at Sir John with great irritation, but seeing now keen to get back home to bed and out of this strange situation, he sighs deeply and adds his name to the paper. There you are. A little bit of colour in your life. Silas says, I hope you're no expecting me to sign this binding paper. Uh, no, Silas. Your credentials are quite sufficient. I do hope that you will assist us once you've heard of the story that I'm about to relay. Of course. Mother always says that a man's word should be his bond anyway. There's no need of signatures. And of course, I've come across binding paper, so you wouldn't catch me putting my pen on it. And what exactly are your credentials? I'm sorry, does that make a difference? Well, you seem to have a better understanding of what's going on here than I do. That's quite right. That's why I haven't signed the binding paper. The John looks slightly confused now and a little bit apprehensive that he so quickly signed his name. And in response to that, Professor Selmy looks almost like he might crack a smile at the discomfort of Sir John. But of course, he would never do such a thing. He hasn't smiled since he was 11. The binding paper is quickly placed and locked in a drawer. A gentleman, allow me to illuminate as promised. Avery, he calls, and a door from an adjoining room is opened and in steps Avery Choi. Behind him... Uh, no one enters the room behind him. Finnegan's done a runner. So as uh, old Avery Choi is entering the room, he's obviously going to make, uh, make some noise opening the door. And that's the moment that I'm going to skedaddle off in whatever direction I can. We have our first roll of the game. <laughs> That's a move. There's a window you could try and launch yourself from. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he'll definitely go out the window. Okay, it's going to be high stakes then because you are not on a ground floor window. Can I judge how high up we are? The fall is going to be painful at best. You're not necessarily going to die from the fall, but I mean... Are his hands bound? Is he free to move them? He's not shackled. Just give you, give you some kind of chance here. You're not shackled. Go for it. You, your hands can be broken before your face hits the ground. <laughs> well, he's not going to just like leap out the window like a salmon. He's going to try and climb out rather than like swan diving into the pavement. You've got your move, which is how many dice? Two dice. Uh, one is gilded. And you've got obviously drive if you wish to add it. I doubt you're going to get any support for this. Well, uh, no one else knows that I'm there. Uh, so first roll. Okay, I'll take the gilded dice for two. Oh, that's not good. Because it's the highest roll. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good. As Avery enters the room, Mr. Twist bolts for the window. He slides it open easily and throws himself out with little regard for how he's going to meet the ground. He launches himself from the window and scuds into the ground. You're going to take one physical damage for a leg injury as you hit the ground. Mm -hmm. You're going to take a second for mental damage as Avery has pulled the mannequin out and is pincing the head with his thumb and forefinger. Yeah, he knows that I've tried to escape. You've just thrown yourself out of a window and just crashed into the ground outside. I mean, he knows. <laughs> okay, then oh, I'll put down one brain injury. <laughs> I can see how uh, throwing yourself out of a window and smashing into the ground is very, very slightly worse than having a hangover, apparently, in this game. <laughs> uh, so everyone hears screaming from outside. <laughs> Excuse me, gentlemen, and Avery leaves the, the office, heads downstairs, and two minutes later, Mr. Twist 
is brought in to the office, one arm over the shoulders of Avery and another over the shoulder of Larry. They throw him down into a chair. <laughs> what does he look like? Injured, by the sense of things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know what clothes he's wearing because the guards provided them. You are in the business attire of the lower classes, so bowler hat and a kind of nondescript suit that doesn't fit you too well. Uh, so I look more or less like a nondescript person, sort of average height, average build. There's not really any noticeable distinctive features. Uh, not an unattractive face, but kind of like quite a forgettable face. I don't think they're going to forget you. <laughs> can I um, try and ascertain what damage he's done and if there's any kind of thing that I can do to like help this person? It looks as though his right leg has been badly sprained. It's going to be recoverable but he may walk with a limp uh, for the next few hours other than that it seems to be just cuts and scrapes and obviously a rather damaged pride uh yeah he looks rather sullen it's just a sprain you damn fool uh, it doesn't get a response right then now that unpleasantness is out the way good evening all my name is avery Choi. you have already met my associate here finnegan twist and he gestures to the man in the chair I am pleased to make your acquaintance. Murderville, have they signed the paper? He receives a nod in confirmation. Splendid. Then let me tell you why we have asked you here tonight. I am a member of the Office of Unexplained Phenomena, a faction within the periphery some of you may have heard of that delves into what you have just experienced, what we call bleed, or in other terms, the supernatural. Pardon the pun, but I am what they term a spook. I am a member of the OUP, as I said, but I also have ties to the government, which allows me to move between groups, sometimes a very useful talent. Sharing this confidence with you leads me to the matter at hand. You see, we need your assistance. We need answers, but we find ourselves unable to seek them. They regard a man called Ernest Wainwright. Have you read of him in the paper? Yes, I've heard it. Murdered, right? Yes, that's correct. What you may not have heard are the circumstances around the murder itself. So let me bring you up to speed. Ernest Wainwright started his career a number of years ago, investigating unexplained matters with ourselves. He was very good, if a little eccentric. During the war, though, he transitioned into fieldwork as a spy, earning a reputation for gathering valuable intelligence and adeptly managing an extensive underground network. This was largely applauded, as he had helped the war effort greatly. But post-war, he severed his ties with us, opting instead to work with the Esoteric Order of New Sciences, a group more interested in studying the matter which you have just encountered. They claim to be men of science, though I've seen their work firsthand. And let me tell you, science is a thin word for the evils they permit to tolerate. Anyway, Ernest's decision to join them met with some disapproval. It seems he, like they, had begun to believe that unexplained phenomena are not something to be prevented, but rather controlled. Over the subsequent years, then, he fell out of favour with us, but recent events have changed everything. Ernest approached us some weeks ago, claiming to have uncovered a plot to infiltrate New Fair. He forewarned of a lethal strike by our adversaries, the old enemy across the sea, the otherware, but insisted on time to unveil their plans. Initially, we dismissed his claims, that is, until they started materialising. As I say, you are familiar with the Newgate murder, that was precisely how Ernest predicted it would all commence. 
though of course he never planned for the victim to be himself. So, we set to tracking him down, and of course we have. He was murdered in the Remembrances Library. We have the scene locked down as we speak, though investigations still continue. Now, we face a dilemma. His new friends, the EONS, refused collaboration. The newspapers have already hinted that we were forewarned of the Newgate murder, and my superiors in the primacy are, to put it mildly, displeased at our ignorance concerning Mr. Wainwright's discoveries. Gentlemen, this is where you enter the picture. Unbound by affiliations to us, you possess the freedom to move and to act more discreetly than we can. I may not be fond of private investigators, but pragmatism prevails. I should mention at this point that the paper you signed does bind you to looking into the death of Ernest Wainwright and finding out what he knew. Now, how does this information strike you all? Well, seems like the top suspect's probably you. Ah, Mr. Twist, you speak again. I'm obviously not offering you the same deal as the others. You will, of course, do our bidding or suffer the consequences. Your skills, though, will be of use to this group, as I understand you know the city like no other. Well, I'm my way around. Uh, so uh, who do you uh, want to spin it on, then? That is exactly not what I want you to do. I want you to investigate this matter in a way that we can't. Find out what happened to Mr. Wainwright and report back. That wasn't you did it? No, it was not me who did it. Well, I mean, you know, your organisation, whatever it was called. Yes, my organisation, whatever it was called, certainly did not commit this gruesome murder, nor place ourselves in public scrutiny for failing to prevent it. And this, uh, this other organisation, the Esoteric Order of uh, New Science, uh, they use all the magic doodads that you won't use, right? They use what they would term science, but yes, we do not delve into the darker matters that they seem happier to engage themselves with. So you would, for instance, like, use any kind of magic paper to enforce behaviour or little dolls you can dunk in water and jab with pins. None, none strange like that then, right? We have your, uh, you have your word on that. As I said, Mr. Twist, I have a particular talent for stepping between the worlds that other orders do not. If you're planning to find my moral scruples, you'll be searching for some time. So, as I say, we, we have your word that you didn't murder old Wainwright then. Uh, so, uh, who do you want us to pin it on then? Have you not suffered enough pain for one evening, both to your pride and your person? Just try to see what job you want us to do. I would like to know that too. Investigating a murder is one thing. So far I've listened as you talk of signing binding paper. One gentleman won't do it, and seems to know a hell of a lot more than the rest of us. And then there's this chap with a different deal entirely, who you seem to be trying to extort. Indeed. I've seen some pretty terrible treatment, to be honest. Yes, I agree. You are rather a strange group to entrust to such an important matter, but I confess we have few options left. I should tell you your party also possesses some rather unique talents that make you suited to the role. You yourself, Sir John, are a prominent man, a well-known military man, a friend of the city, and your credentials for getting the job done, so to speak, are second to none. Well, that's the first sensible thing you've said since I arrived in this room. And you, Mr. Trapper, you have rather darker talents, which may lend yourself to understanding the rather strange goings-on that Mr. Wainwright alluded to. I think if the group are to emerge from this investigation safely, your talents will most certainly be called upon. My concern with this investigation is, to be frank, the people I'd be working with. This is a serious business, and... They don't appear to be serious people. 
you'll find few people more serious in this group than Professor Selmy, who is a model of morality and science, are you not, Professor? I'm certainly a man of science. Your analytical brain, Professor, is renowned. I feel that you are a very valuable addition to this group and perfectly placed to assist them on this vital task. If I can help everyone in this room disavow themselves of this bizarre belief in witchcraft, then perhaps I would be doing the city a service. You would be doing more than that, Professor, as you will be aware there is talk of war again in our fair city. Wainwright mentioned this in great detail, but didn't give us the details of what he feared. This is at the centre of what we must find out. What did he know? And what convinced him that New Fair would be plunged into war again? I don't mind telling you that little we do know is disturbing. You will see as much if you attend the scene of his death. It is important we have answers, gentlemen, and you are the team to do it. Very well. Then I suggest we make a start. Excellent. Allow me to assist you. He passes you, Professor, a letter. Show this to any of my section you come across, and this should gain you access to areas others cannot. Oh, and one more thing, gentlemen. When we did speak to Ernest, he said that whatever tragedy he was trying to prevent would befall us on the 10th of September. So you have little time to unravel the goings-on around his strange death. So what, some kind of tragedy going to befall you guys then? I believe he spoke of a tragedy that would befall the city. I have to say I can't see how it could lead to such a thing. But as I say, he spoke of the other where and of war. This is most serious. Well, I can't say I'm happy to be working with this group, but Mother always says challenging yourself to do the right thing is the greatest challenge of all. Well said, Mr. Trapper. I'm very pleased to hear, Mr. Trapper, that you will be partaking of this exploit. Then allow me to guide you in your initial steps. As I said, Mr. Wainwright was murdered in the Remembrances Library in the Shrive Line. I have some of my men guarding the scene as we speak. His house was situated in Flicker's Narrows. I believe it's 17 Grouse Row. I don't know what you'd find there, but it may be worth closer inspection. The only other thing we can gather from his story to colleagues of mine was his interest in the Groggy Gull, a rather notorious pub found at the docks of Hollow Harbour. I'm afraid there's nothing more I can give you, apart from my best wishes and hopes that you bring me answers sooner than not. I know the gull well enough. That doesn't surprise me, as I take a sniff. Um, I look at Sir John with disdain. Sir John smiles. And if you pick up any artefacts of interest, says Mr. Murnivelle, then, of course, bring them back to me. I would be very interested to examine them. Of course, Murnivelle. The, your priority, though, gentlemen, is to establish what happened to Mr. Wainwright, though. Mr. Murnivell and I have some other matters to discuss. We will leave you to consider your first moves. Uh, shall we give you a few moments quiet? And with that, he gestures Mr. Murnivell to leave the room, and they leave you in the study alone. Sir John steps forward. My name is Sir John Harrington. You may have heard of me. I am something of a well-known explorer. It is not a pleasure... But well met. Admire your demeanour there. It's not really great circumstances, is it? Uh, I know what you're thinking. But I reckon my greatest enemy is those two that just left. They don't seem like people we can trust, if I'm honest. Not in the slightest. What uh, trick they get you with that paper stuff then? I don't know. They just said to sign it, so I signed it. I'm here to win a wager against the uh, grey man in the corner there. 
well, my greatest priority is probably try and get hold of that paper. Who knows uh, when they'll strike your name off or what will happen when they do. Do you think what they said was right about there being a problem that affected the entire city? Who knows? You have to excuse me, I'm rather new to all this. I've only recently discovered that the world is not just black and white science. Well, it's always been a bit grubby, isn't it? Not for me. Uh-huh. Tell me, what do you think? I think that somehow we have found ourselves in a position where we must go and establish the facts. I suggest we do so without delay. Fair enough. What are we going to do? There are three places, he said. Groggy Gull, Flickers and Arrows, and the Remembrances Library. Obviously, Silas, you mentioned you knew the Groggy Gull. Shall we start there? I'd recommend heading to the crime scene first. The Gull is not a place where people chat so much. You know what I mean? Very well. I, as I am in a world beyond my comprehension in some ways, and you seem far more at home, I'm willing to bow to your expertise in this matter. Well, library it is then. I agreed. To the Remembrances Library. We allowed to uh, leave this place then? You're going to jump out a window the moment we leave. Not, not my preferred method of egress, I have to say. Mr. Avery rejoins the room. If there's anything else I can do to assist you, gentlemen, please let me know. I have taken the liberty of asking the coach I arrived on to remain outside, so you may begin with haste. Well, I've got one request to uh, aid in concentration and focus and whatnot. You could... Uh, Take away the doodad thing you got strung around my neck. Uh, help me think about the job at hand rather than, you know, said neck. The promise I give to you, Mr. Twist, is that if you complete this task for us, we will look most favourably on you in the future. Do remember that you breathe at all as we allowed it. Can I try and gauge whether he's telling the truth in what he says there? Is there a way I can, can I like look at his body language or? Ah, uh, yes, read. Marvellous. Uh, so I'll chuck in a drive to assist. Oh, three dice? So three dice, not a gilded action, and Harry is going to assist you, so three dice. That is a two, a two, and a six. I will take the six, please. An unqualified success. You are a good reader of people, and you can tell that Avery is being entirely sincere when he says that Finnegan Twists will be looked upon favourably if he completes this. In fact, because it's such a good role, I'll go further. He's genuinely concerned around the events of Mr. Wainwright. He's not given you the full story. That's clear from the way he looks. And he is going to look incredibly favorably on this group as a whole if they can solve this problem for him. I will relay that when we are alone because I want to make sure, like if we're going to succeed in this, now obviously I'm aware of how serious this is. I now want this to succeed. And Finnegan Twist appears to be someone who could be very handy in that situation. The group make their way down the stairs, through the dark horse, and on to the stagecoach, which is awaiting them. Sir John tells the driver to head for the Remembrances Library, crack the reins, and the horses make off in the direction of the Shrive Line. And we'll leave it there. Okay, shall we do this? Hit it, Chuck. See what you got. Chuck versus the machines. 
in, is that your collective team name is it it is that yeah the other one 25 yeah. weeks in 27 weeks in no team name this time we're the machines <laughs> yeah we're done <laughs> what do you say here dom you say let's do something i'm gonna try and take your let's get going with a you know uh let's, let's get so ready dangerous. to rumble you yeah. should invite let's, your own let's you should invent your own catch get on with i can't remember what you say <laughs> i usually i usually lie and say those are really good facts or well done or awesome and then uh, <laughs> i'll say let's crack on with the next chapter of dice company okay uh, those are some really compelling facts <laughs> I'm a better actor than you, I guess. It's they weren't. <laughs> you suck. No, 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 not at all. Well done. Good first effort. Uh, I can send it to you or I can read it. Up to you. Uh, send it to me, please. I don't want this professor sell me, motherfucker, knowing all my business. I object to being called a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you would. I'm finding it extremely difficult to maintain the voice. It's tickling my sore throat. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please consider supporting Dice Company on Patreon or on Apple Podcasts, where for the price of a cup of coffee, you get access to a whole other show, Extra Rules, where the gang look back over previous chapters of the Dice Company story. Don't forget, you can find us on our socials at Dice Company on Blue Sky, at Dice Company Pod on X, and at Dice Company Podcast everywhere else. If you enjoyed this chapter, please like and subscribe, and don't forget to recommend us to your friends. If you didn't like it, recommend us to your enemies. And we'll see you next time on Dice Company. <laughs>